And welcome back into a new edition of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Show, known as RLA Radio. So happy to be wel- welcoming all of you along here, listening on the podcast or streaming on multiple different radio stations here uh, across the country and across the world as well. We want to welcome in Dennis Tubergen. He has written eight books. He is four-time best-selling authored of those books as well. We have a longtime host of this RLA radio program and a frequent keynote speaker at numerous different financial industry events. I want to welcome in uh, Dennis Tubergen to the program. And uh, Dennis, how are you doing today? Looking forward to the program. Jeremy, I am as well. I'm doing great. Hope you are as well. So you have a new report. And I just got to say for those listeners that have maybe been tuning in for years or those just for the very first time, we'd like to fill you with a lot of different knowledge here, a lot of different knowledge about the financial industry and the financial sector, but not just about it, because there's a lot of people that do that. But we like to give you the background on it and the historical background of what maybe even governments and currencies have done, not only just decades ago, but hundreds upon hundreds of years ago, how it worked out for them and how it may or may not play out for us today. And all those different things to keep in mind when you are trying to build as much of a retirement portfolio as possible. You want to rely on people like Dennis Tubergen here uh, to help fill in those gaps, to be that expert uh, as you navigate through this wild uh, world right now of information and sometimes information overload. We try to give you the background there, and that's why you've got to make sure you stay up to speed and bookmark the page retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Because just for example, this will give you a link to, or you can just go there directly. You want to cut right to the chase and go to requestyourreport.com. There's five retirement tips. That is this month's newsletter, five retirement tips. And Dennis, uh, we know we want people to go and go to the, the website and, and, and have you send the report for free, we might add. But can you give us just a quick preview of what those five retirement tips might be, a couple of them even? Yeah, you know, we'll talk about that in detail uh, in segment four. But one of the big things that people... Uh, need to be aware of, and we'll talk about this in the last segment, is when it comes to getting the most from Social Security, uh, there are a lot of maximization strategies that you should consider. Uh, it's, a, it's a complex topic. There are a lot of different ways to collect from Social Security, particularly if you're married or have been married. So you, you want to not only know how to to collect Social Security in the best way possible, but also minimizing taxes on Social Security. And the report talks about the fact that if you have money in a traditional IRA or a 401k, uh, you might find that you're going to be paying taxes at a higher level on your Social Security benefits. So the report gives you some strategies to consider there as well. Uh, the report is available at requestyourreport.com, and I'd encourage everybody to check it out. It's free. Just go to the site. Let me know where to mail the report, and I'll be glad to do that. And uh, coming up right before we jump in a little bit more to this uh, uh, topic, uh, a couple of different topics we want to talk about, about the uh, uh, wealth gap widening is we do have Dr. Uh, Mr. Mark uh, Jeftovic coming on the program. He is the publisher of The Bitcoin Capitalist. Uh, so he's going to be coming up talking about that. That's always an exciting and what a hot topic that is as well. But uh, Dennis, you talk about and you look at America and you look at you know, what used to be such a big thing is the strength of the middle class, okay? But what we're seeing, and I want you to explain a little bit more, what, what you're seeing is this wealth gap widening. 
And uh, I want to know why you think that is the case. And you, you stated is really because of currency creation leading to this wealth gap. But what do you mean by that? And why, why would that be? Well, Jeremy, when I talk about currency creation, I'm talking about the quantitative easing program in which the Federal Reserve and other world central banks have been engaging. Essentially, whenever you hear quantitative easing or currency creation, they're, they're printing money out of thin air. We'll just call it what it is. Historically speaking, you mentioned at the outset that one of the things that we do here is take a look at what's happened historically and make recommendations to our listeners as to what they do with their money based on what's happened historically. Well, whenever currency has been created from thin air, and this is far from, far from a, a, a new idea, it happened in the Roman Empire, uh, there are certain predictable outcomes that emerge. And one of those is you get a wealth gap. So to answer your question directly, uh, there was an article published um, by Bank of America Global Research this past week, and it examined wealth distribution among the baby boomers, and we'll define baby boomers as those born between 1946 and 1964, and we'll define traditionalists as those born pre-1946. 80% of household net worth is now owned by the traditionalists and the baby boomers. And when you take a look at the millennials and the Gen Xers, uh, the Gen Xers obviously have fared better than millennials because they've been at it longer. Uh, but millennials control uh, a much smaller percentage of U.S. wealth than any of the generations that preceded them at that point in time. So what I mean by that is if you snapshot the baby boomers 30 years ago, they had more wealth than the millennials do today. And in my view, uh, that is likely because of currency creation. And a lot of millennials now that are out there trying to buy houses are finding that due to rising interest rates, a 30-year mortgage rate pushing 8%, uh, as well as high housing prices that have resulted from all this easy money and easy credit, uh, housing affordability is uh, very, very uh, difficult for, it's, it's very difficult, I should say, for many uh, millennial households to, to buy a house. Well, you just mentioned that affordability, you know, for the younger American household. What do you think is going to happen? Do you see a, a change in that happening or is it going to, you know, do you see it getting a little bit better here or do all signs point to you don't think it's getting any better? Is it going to be worse? How do you see home affordability moving ahead? Well, Jeremy, I think it's just going to get tougher. And there's a couple of reasons I say that. One, uh, until inflation is under control. And, you know, there are those politicians that have taken a bit of a victory lab saying, hey, we beat inflation. But I would point out to everybody listening that uh, the rate of inflation has slowed some from a year, year and a half ago. But inflation is still there. The inflation that we experienced has not receded. I mean, prices have not dropped. So uh, we're seeing inflation on inflation at a slower rate than we did a year, year and a half ago. But we still have massive inflation. That is really taking away purchasing power because we're all paying more for what we need to have, like food. And when it comes to maybe stopping renting and buying a house or trading up in a house, uh, not only are interest rates a lot higher and that payment a lot more, uh, but we're also just spending more for, for groceries and, and things that we have to buy. So I think until we get a balanced budget, at the level of the federal government, the Fed's going to have no choice but to create currency at some point in the future. I think that exacerbates this housing affordability problem, and I think it's going to get a lot worse before it starts to improve. 
it's amazing how the media can take it one way or the other, well, however you want to look at it, of just going, well, what massive inflation we had a year ago and how terrible it was. But, hey, this year, hey, we're not doing so bad. We're, we're only increasing this much. Like the massive inflation has slowed down, but it's still there and it still hasn't gone back. I mean, that's exactly what you just said, but it is amazing the perspective on that. Well, uh, when we're talking about affordability, how about you know the lower income earners uh, in the U.S. is struggling even more, as I know what you said, talk about this currency, uh, uh, you know, creation, and I imagine that's the same. You're, you're gonna you're gonna say the same thing about that trend, aren't you? About the lower income earners here in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, if you if you take a look um, at just some stats, so let, let me just go back and, and 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 give you some actual statistics. If you take the percentage change in mortgage debt since the fourth quarter of 2021, so we're going to go back two years. Um, actually, this data is actually as of the third quarter. So we're going to go back in between a year and a half and two years. The traditionalists have about 15% less mortgage debt than they did two years ago. The baby boomers have about the same level of mortgage debt. The Gen Xers, up 20%. The millennials up 20%. So you've got the younger uh, portion of the U.S. population taking on a lot more debt at a lot higher interest rate. And that means they're going to be affected more quickly by inflation. In fact, when you look at who's spending the money in the U.S. economy, the Gen Xers and the millennials are having a hard time you know, making ends meet. You've got the traditionalists and the baby boomers that are spending all the money. And then you've got a lot of millennials that are just going to have to get used to renting because there's no way at these prices and these interest rates uh, that they can afford to, to go out and, and get into that first home. If, if you're planning for retirement today too, Jeremy, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up here as we close the segment. We do have a new report for this month titled Five Retirement Tips. You can get the report by visiting requestyourreport.com. In the report, we talk about social security maximization, drawdown prevention, uh, how to reduce taxes potentially on your IRA, and a strategy we call divide and conquer. Uh, that is all available in the November special report. All you need to do is visit requestyourreport.com to request your free copy of the report. I'll be back after these words with my special guest today, Mr. Mark Jeftovic. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Mark Jeftovic. Mark is the new publisher at dollarcollapse.com. He is also the publisher of The Bitcoin Capitalist. You can learn more at thebitcoincapitalist.com forward slash RLA radio. And Mark, welcome back to the program. Hey, Dennis. It's always great to be here. So, Mark, a lot going on worldwide when you start talking about fiat currencies. And uh, I'll use this to segue into Bitcoin. but. You know, in, in August, the uh, the BRICS summit was held. Uh, there was some uh, some pundits, some analysts who were anticipating that they would roll out a gold-backed currency, which did not happen. Now you have uh, talk of that. You have uh, China actually now executing uh, international uh, oil trades using digital yuan. It seems like the whole world of currency is changing extremely rapidly. What's your take on all this? Yeah, this is the de-dollarization uh, theme or meme or whatever you want to call it. And um, it's something that 
a lot of us like contrarians and financial commentators, especially sound money advocates have been saying was going to come for a long time. It's been a long time coming. Uh, but I, I, for one, and maybe I'm not alone, am surprised at how much it's accelerated in the last year. So when I first started writing about de-dollarization as an inevitability, I was thinking in five, 10, 20 year increments. And then suddenly um, it's happening real time right in front of our eyes. It doesn't mean the US dollar is going away or it's not gonna be usable anywhere. It's got a long way to go for that, but it's suddenly not crazy talk to talk about the end of the US dollar as the world reserve currency. That's very much openly discussed as a matter of uh, not if anymore, but just when. And the whole de-dollarization dynamic is really happening. And I think two things caused that. Um, one was the, uh, the U.S. government was seizing foreign state reserve assets, um, regardless of what you think of those states or why they did it. Uh, it still sent a message to everybody saying um, we don't have full control of our foreign reserve assets if they're U.S. dollars. And then the other one is just the, the massive, massive debt expansion that's just accelerating. Uh, even now, you know, $600 billion in under a month. Uh, the last trillion, the last full trillion took 33 days. And so this is just beginning to go parabolic. And that's what's driving this narrative, I think. So I know, Mark, this is a, a dangerous question to ask, but uh... I think it was Ernest Hemingway said uh, you go bankrupt two ways, gradually, then suddenly. It just seemed to me as yeah. you were talking that, you know, you, you have this whole uh, scenario where the dollar has just, you know, over the last 20 years lost uh, gradually uh, its share of international transactions as far as international trade is concerned. And now that seems to really be accelerating. Is that an applicable quote to, to what we're seeing here? Yeah, that's one of my favorite quotes of all time. And it really does apply here because these these tectonic shifts that are so monumental and historic, they play out over not decades, but generations, really. I and mean, if you look at the if you look at the curve and the trajectory of the purchasing power of the US dollar, um, you know, that had over a hundred years of stability. It was even mildly deflationary, like purchasing power increased on the US dollar up until, you know, like for, call it from the end of the civil war after that, after, after the hyperinflations worked their way out to 1914 or 1913, when the, the federal reserve was enacted, it, it, it's like a, a, a horizontal straight line curve. And then as soon as the federal reserve is created, it starts this downward trajectory over a hundred and whatever it is years now, 120 years, 110 years. And it's just, that's gradually, gradually, gradually. And then now we seem to be going into this suddenly phase and the suddenly phase in that context can be five years. It can be a decade, but it's, it feels really fast as it's unfolding right now. So, John, when, when, when you look at what central banks around the world are doing, and I find it ironic that they're doing this, given that they're in charge of 
monetary policy. They're essentially in charge of issuing fiat currencies. And yet central banks around the world have, you know, almost without exception, been accumulating gold in 2023 at a a very fast pace. Uh, It seems to me that if they really like fiat currencies, they'd just be, you know, stacking up more of that. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? You you really have to pay attention to what central banks do and not what they say. Although my own country, Canada, is the exception. We sold the last of our gold reserves in, I think, 2016. We sold them down to zero. Um, and we're the, we're the fourth largest gold-producing nation in the world, and we have absolutely no gold in our central bank. It's kind of a travesty. But everywhere, everywhere else... I, I wrote a piece on this on dollar collapse uh, just just a couple of weeks ago. Every all the other central banks are at record levels of accumulation of gold, and um, you know, and mainly they're 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 like China, they're they're Russia, they're emerging markets. Um, you don't see a lot of well, even the Bank of England bought some gold actually this year. That, so that was a little uh, surprising to me. So when you look at uh, hedging your bet, okay, so, so we're really saying that, you know, you, you don't want to have all your assets in the same currency basket. Talk a little bit about gold versus silver versus Bitcoin versus maybe other currencies around the world. Uh, what should someone who aspires to a comfortable stress-free retirement be looking at as far as currency diversification in Martin Jeftovic's opinion? Yeah, I like options. Optionality is my, you know, holy grail of precious commodities. And so things like Bitcoin and gold and silver give you different flavors of optionality. And I've always been a Bitcoin and precious metals person. I've never been a Bitcoin or precious metals. I think it's I've always thought that's kind of a um, a nonsensical argument or a misguided argument. You want both for different reasons. Uh, Bitcoin, you know, digital bearer asset that is completely immune to capital controls. You can zap a billion dollars around the world in in the blink of an eye, costs you a couple of pennies to do it. Uh, Gold, I mean, good as gold, right? 5,000 years of storing value and, and being just unassailable in terms of purchasing power. And silver, I mean, silver could be more mispriced than gold is. And I like things like junk silver and even silver bars, because if you're in a complete all bets are off scenario, you know, and I need to get on a bus or hire a, hire a truck to move me around, I don't want to have to like chop a gold bar in half to pay for it. I'd rather just hand the guy, you know, a little bit of silver or some junk silver and just have something on hand to pay for the day-to-day sundries of life. I think silver is great for that. Not to mention that it has that appreciation potential when, when the, when the market finally wakes up to what's going on here. So Mark, talk to me a little bit about the argument for Bitcoin. And I want to put that question to you in the context of all these central banks around the world are also pursuing digital currencies. Um, and, and they obviously don't like Bitcoin. They don't like Ethereum. They don't like other uh, uh, non-sovereign digital currencies. 
Uh, how do you see all this shaking out? Yeah, I, uh, that's a great question. You're right. Everybody under the sun is pursuing a central bank digital currency, CBDC. I'm actually working on a, a new book, a new ebook on that, um, which I'm going to, you know, if you're on the bomb thrower mailing list at bombthrower.com, you'll get that for free when it drops. And I think that what will happen is a kind of a monetary apartheid. So if your economic sustenance is reliant on the state, you're going to have a CBDC imposed on you and you are going to have to play by those rules economically. And I think CBDCs, whether they're designed that way or they morph that way, I think they're going to eventually become a kind of social credit. I think it's going to be tied to your carbon footprint and you're basically going to live a gamified life off your phone being told, you know, when you can eat meat, when you can travel, when you can get on a plane. Uh, and that's because, you know, if you're dependent on UBI or stimmies or whatever it is coming out of the government, you're not going to have much of a choice. Now, against that, there's going to be a whole class of sovereign wealth, sovereign individuals, people who have their wealth outside of the banking system, whether you're owning income producing businesses, real estate, and of course, gold, silver, Bitcoin. Um, I don't think CBDCs are going to negate Bitcoin. A lot of people say they won't allow Bitcoin to survive when CBDCs come out. It's not an option. It's too late for that. We're well beyond that point. Um, I write at length about it. I couldn't fit it all into 12 minutes. But that's why I call it uh, a situation like monetary apartheid. You're going to have people with real wealth, real assets who are using things like Bitcoin and then people who are completely like the welfare class, which will be much larger, will be using CBDCs. And one quick correction I'll throw in, the central banks don't hate Ethereum. In fact, I think Ethereum is positioning itself. Well, actually, it's not a theory. It's a reality. Ethereum is actually positioning itself to be a base layer for central bank CBDCs. And so is Ripple. You know, so there's a few cryptos out there which actually want to be part of the CBDC infrastructure. And uh, Brazil, for example, is building theirs on a private fork of Ethereum. We already see this happening in some white papers. So uh, I have to make that distinction of between Bitcoin and Ethereum and the rest of the cryptos. Bitcoin is truly in a class unto itself. And we even see that in the regulatory posture in the U.S. government. Well, my guest today is Mr. Mark Jeftovic. He is the publisher at DollarCollapse.com. He is also the publisher of The Bitcoin Capitalist. You can learn more at TheBitcoinCapitalist.com forward slash RLA radio. I'll return after these words with my special guest, Mr. Mark Jeftovic. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and this is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm chatting today with Mr. Mark Jeftovic. He is the publisher at dollarcollapse.com. He is also the publisher of the Bitcoin Capitalist. You can learn more at the bitcoincapitalist.com forward slash RLA radio. And Mark, let's just talk a minute about the argument to own Bitcoin. I have long been an advocate of owning gold and silver. Bitcoin, to be completely candid, not so much. 
Tell me why I should own Bitcoin along with gold and silver. I think the major reason right now is that it's still very asymmetrical in the sense that there is, when you look at the market caps between um, bonds and gold and Bitcoin, there's such a huge asymmetry there that you can, you can allocate a very small portion of your portfolio to Bitcoin. And if I'm wrong and it goes to zero, it will really be immaterial to your overall results. But if I'm right, they will be very material to your improved results. And I'm talking about a 1% allocation or a 2% allocation. During the last cycle, when, the, when what, the, what I call the maverick billionaires started moving in, the Paul Tudor Jones and the, the Druckenmillers and the Sailors and the Musks started moving into Bitcoin, they were doing it with a 1% or 2% allocation. Some of them have since upped their allocation. But the point is, anyone can take a 1% hit, even if it goes to zero, but because like bonds are like almost $200 trillion of what is in my mind, dead money walking. Like they call it return-free risk for a reason, right? The great bond super cycle is over because all the fiat currencies are racing to the bottom. Gold, $10 trillion, only half of it investable because the rest is in like jewelry and stuff like that. Um, Bitcoin, half a trillion right now. So let's say there's a 20 or 30% bond exodus over the next 20 years. I don't think that's horribly unrealistic. It might be aggressive. Maybe it's a 10 or 15% exodus from bonds. Uh, you know, if you put, if two or three or 4% of that moves into Bitcoin, um, you know, and the rest of it moves into gold or whatever, that's going to change the nature. It's going to change the order of magnitude of where Bitcoin is priced. It's going to reprice it a couple of digits higher. And that's why taking a very small allocation now, it's still early. It's still not too late to, you know, a lot of people look at it and say, it, it's all sort of a double-edged sword. They look at it and say, it's backed by nothing. It's going to zero. And then they look at it and they say, it's run from zero to whatever it is today, 34,000 US. And they say, well, I've missed the run. I've missed the move. I don't think so. I think it's still very early. And I think it's also clear to everybody that this stuff is here to stay. It's not going anywhere, especially now that it's been designated as a commodity by the CFTC. There is even a BIS paper that, that specifies uh, tier one alternative reserve levels for banks to hold Bitcoin. Um, and there's the spot ETFs coming. And that's basically, it is baked into the system now. This stuff is here to stay. So Mark, take someone that says, okay, that makes sense. 1%, maybe I'll do that. How does someone get exposure to Bitcoin in their portfolio? What's the best way to do it in your view? So the very best way to do it is you buy Bitcoin on an exchange or somewhere and you move it into a self-custody cold wallet. If you're a family, if you're a fiduciary, uh, like if you're a family office, a fiduciary or an institution, you work with a institutional custody partner to have like proper 
multi-signature custody of this Bitcoin. That's the best way to do it. The second best way or, or the sort of ways that still get you that exposure, but you don't actually have that that sort of bulletproof self-custody level um, is you can buy it in the spot ETFs. I mean, they don't have them in the States, but we've had them up here in Canada for years, which is kind of weird. I always thought that we were that, that we were ahead of the States in the regulatory game that way. But a spot ETF as distinct from a futures ETF, which I wouldn't buy, I don't think it's a good way to garner exposure. A spot ETF, you can at least have the ability to redeem your Bitcoin into self-custody if you want to. So the Bitcoin is there, somebody else is holding it for you, um, you have the option to take possession to redeem your shares into the actual Bitcoin. And then the third way is, and this is where the Bitcoin capitalist letter got its start, uh, especially because there's no clear pathway to an ETF in the States. When I started writing the newsletter, you can hold companies in the space as a proxy to Bitcoin, like publicly traded Bitcoin companies. And so we have a portfolio of, uh, I think it's 10 names. We don't trade. I'm actually closer to a value investor than a, than a swing trader or anything like that. We have 10 names that we think are the best, highest quality Bitcoin companies in the space. Um, and then you can, you can hold those shares and uh, get sort of proxy exposure that way as well. And they're still pretty cheap right now. I mean, they've had some great moves this year because Bitcoin, as I said, is still the number one performing asset this year. Uh, the Bitcoin public the, the bitcoin stocks have had like some 2 and 300% moves off january but they're still way below where they were like when we were in a in a up only bitcoin bull market like they are they are like 50 60% off of those levels now and some of them are trading at better fundamental levels than they were when i first discovered and and started writing about them so, Mark, for our listeners that say, hey, that makes sense because, you know, there's a lot of people that want exposure to gold and silver. They buy miners, sometimes producing miners, sometimes, you know, juniors where, uh, you know, they're exploring. Um, is, is there a parallel in crypto stocks? And, and can you give maybe our listeners an example? Yeah. So, for example, the same thing with the miners. When when you're when when gold moves, the miners move even more. When Bitcoin moves, the miners move even more. I'd say a couple of uh, bellwethers in the Bitcoin space: MicroStrategy and Marathon Digital, two companies we have in the portfolio. Um, you know, if Bitcoin goes up fifty percent, they'll double. Now, the the reverse of that is in a down market; those things will take a beating. But uh, when you're in, and, and the Bitcoin, and this is also kind of a long conversation, but Bitcoin bull markets tend to run in three-year stretches because of the halving cycle, which is hard-coded right into the protocol itself. Um, when you're at the beginning of a three-year run, like we are now, we're about halfway through, we're a few months away from the Bitcoin halving, we're coming off of a down year. Uh, this is almost the perfect sweet spot to start loading up on some of these Bitcoin stocks. 
So I'm chatting today with Mr. Mark Jeftovic. His website is thebitcoincapitalist.com. You can go to thebitcoincapitalist.com forward slash RLA radio. Mark has some special deals for you there. He's also the publisher at dollarcollapse.com. So Mark, moving ahead, uh, what's your forecast for, you know, the world economy? You mentioned in the first segment, all this debt accumulation that's taking place, you know, on the balance sheet of the U.S. government, but private sector is not far behind. There's there's a lot of evidence that, uh, you know, about two thirds of the American population here is, you know, using debt and credit cards to make ends meet. That that can't continue forever. So, what do you see as the end game here? Well, I mean, like a lot of us in this space, uh, like yourself probably, and and uh, guys like. You know John Rubino, who I who I met through Dollar Collapse. We've been waiting for the mother of all implosions for a long time, right? And uh, you know, there's Douglas Douglas Casey has this great quote. It's one of my favorites. He says, "Just because something is inevitable doesn't make it imminent." And he said that maybe 30 years ago. We are headed for the mother of all economic implosions, and we may finally be approaching the imminent stage instead of the eventual stage. It goes back to the Hemingway quote, right? You went bankrupt two ways gradually, then suddenly. We could be pulling into the suddenly phase. The suddenly phase can last five to 10 years. There is no more room to kick the can. And we've even seen this with the Fed hiking cycle this time out. They did the fastest hiking cycle in Fed history. And they did it because inflation got out of control. Inflation went from transient to it's good for you to we've got to do something before we have a revolution on our hands. But they're kind of trapped now because they can't keep raising because we're seeing what's happening to the debt and the bond markets. And if they lower, if they have, they can't raise and they can't lower and they can't stay where they are. They've really painted themselves into a corner pretty well. All the central banks have. And so I think inevitably you're gonna they're gonna choose inflation. Everyone's gonna choose inflation, and we're gonna have a high inflation um, crescendo to all this. That's just going to take all of the fiat currencies out of the picture at a different pace, different paces. Um, and there's gonna be this rush to hard assets. I call it a monetary regime change. That's what we're headed for. That's the end game. Well, my guest today has been Mr. Mark Jeftovic. He is the publisher at dollarcollapse.com. He's also the publisher of The Bitcoin Capitalist. You can learn more at thebitcoincapitalist.com forward slash RLA radio. Mark, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Amazingly quick 24 minutes we just covered, but love to have you back down the road. Yeah, time always passes in a blink when you and I talk. I'll do it anytime you want. Mark, thanks so much. Stay with us. We will return after these words. And welcome back into the final segment of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio show, RLA Radio. We are with Dennis Tubergen. And uh, a reminder that you can find a lot of different great resources available uh, to you free of charge at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Again, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And uh, we are right now, there's a nice new report out there, Dennis. You can get that sent right to you, requestyourreport.com, requestyourreport.com. In this month of November, it's five retirement tips. Okay, we touched on one of them uh, in the first segment, but if we could go back to that 
uh, and talk about this report and maybe talk about some of these these tips here because you talk about maximizing Social Security benefits. And I know that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of math equations that 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 go along with this and probability curves and stuff, too. But you do simplify it because it is a rather complex uh, topic, but super, super important. Um, But if you could uh, maybe give us give us one of these these tips to start off with here, uh, too. Just what what to do, what to know is just one of these five retirement tips. Well, let's let's talk about Jeremy. You mentioned maximizing Social Security. I think that's a big question in the minds of a lot of people, particularly as they approach retirement. They wonder, um, you know, how do I maximize my Social Security benefits? When should I collect? When should my spouse collect? Um, there's no shortage of what I call clickbait out there. If you uh, are talking about Social Security. It's funny how those ads magically appear when you get online. Um, so, so, so what is the best thing to know? Well, I will tell you that um, I did a book that was a bestseller a couple of years ago called The Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization. Um, and a lot of those tips are in the November report. And as you mentioned, that's available at requestyourreport.com. But the biggest tip I will say is you want to know the rules. So if you're married or if you were married for 10 years and you have not remarried, uh, there's something called a dual income effect that may help you maximize your Social Security benefits. So depending on your earnings history, depending on the earnings history of your spouse or ex-spouse, you may be able to maximize benefits by one of you collecting and one of you deferring benefits. Uh, now, depending on your birthday, if you were born January 1, 1954 or prior, uh, you even have some additional maximization strategy, strategies over and above the one that I just mentioned. But knowing the rules, um, knowing how waiting till your full retirement age could benefit you, uh, knowing the survivorship rules, I mean, those are all things that you need to know. Those are all factors you need to consider uh, when you're determining how you want to collect Social Security. Uh, ultimately, what you really want to do is figure out what level of income do I want when I retire? Is that possible? And now what's the best way for me to plug Social Security into that and, and really make that decision in the context of what are my other resources? How much income am I gonna am I going to need? And then finally, what's my tax liability going to look like? And that's something that often people don't consider uh, when they're thinking about and and considering how they're going to collect social security benefits, well, and that's just it. Is some of those uh, uh, maximization strategies, um, you know, that really aren't talked about. You know, you're starting to give an example of, or if you if you could, it's you know what you keep, not what you gross, meaning like w- what your total is, but what actually is your bring home. You know, without all those taxes, could could you touch touch on that because those things are pretty heavily intertwined there? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think that's even uh, more important than when you collect Social Security. At least it is for many people, in my view. So, if you think about Social Security, the first thing to remember is Social Security benefits are now taxable. Now, I know that may rub a lot of listeners the wrong way, given that you know, when you're when you're working and everything's withheld out of your check, it seems you've paid tax on that once and now you're paying tax on it again if you have too much income. Well, the first thing to remember is that under current law, nobody pays tax on more than 85% of the social security benefits they receive. So even a guy that's pretty well healed like a Warren Buffett gets 15% of his social security benefits tax-free. 
So depending on the other income that you have, and Social Security uses a formula called the combined income formula, and the combined income formula is comprised of half of your Social Security benefits as well as all other income. Now, all other income basically includes anything. It could be earned income, capital gain income, income uh, interest income, could be dividend income, could be pension income, uh, could be distributions from an IRA. All that gets added together. And if your combined income exceeds a certain number, then your Social Security benefits will be taxed on an ever-increasing uh, percentage basis, depending on how far over that threshold you go. Now, here's the important point, and this is outlined in the November report, and if you're just joining us, that's available at requestyourreport.com. If you have distributions from a Roth IRA, unlike distributions from a traditional IRA, they will not subject your Social Security to a higher level of tax. So that gives you one potential maximization strategy that is discussed in detail in the November special report. And that report, again, is titled Five Retirement Tips. Well, the other thing, Dennis, too, uh, I'm just taking the liberty of plugging one of these uh, best-selling books that you've written before here. One of these books is The Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization. Uh, but I know this this November report here uh, you know, keeps on top of that with the latest, latest data. But that this book that that you wrote here, this little black book, really breaks down a lot of those examples and case studies on this scenario and this scenario, this scenario and this scenario. So that'd be something to, to look out to and that you can inquire more at the retirement lifestyle advocates dot com website about getting into that book. But uh Dennis, just specifically in the, the two minutes or so left, um Going back to the the balance or how you know high of a tax could you be paying on these social security benefits uh based on your high balances? I mean, how, how much of a difference is that really? Well, it could be significant. So let's just talk about what happens under current law. If you have a traditional IRA or a 401k, when you reach age 73, you are now going to be forced to take distributions from that account based upon a schedule that the IRS has published. So they're called required minimum distributions. It's essentially a distribution based on some estimate of your remaining life expectancy. So what that means is as you get older, you have to take a bigger percentage of what's remaining in your account out. If you illustrate IRA or 401k growth at a modest growth rate of even 4%, you find that the difference between your required minimum distributions at age 73 and 93 are about 60%, and they're 60% plus higher at age 93 based on a 4% growth rate. So here's the point. Whenever you're talking about maximizing Social Security, it not only makes sense to think about when should I collect, but what are the taxes I'm going to pay on that benefit? And given that we have lower tax rates now between now until 2026, does it make sense to do some Roth IRA conversions? That is all discussed in the November special report. Uh, if you haven't looked at this, I'd encourage you to do that. Consider the report to be a second opinion. Go to requestyourreport.com. Be glad to send you a copy of the report as well as some bonus information. Again, that's requestyourreport.com. Jeremy, we're out of time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back again next week.